I don't know about you, but it's certainly my opinion that Pixar Studios makes some of the greatest movies on the planet. I mean, I see some nodding heads. I mean, there's so many good movies. There's Toy, there's Toy Story, like all of them. Right? Finding Nemo, Wall-E, Up, Ratatouille, The Incredibles. But recently I returned to this movie that I, um, that I had honestly forgotten about, but I think it's one of the greatest of all. It's this movie Inside Out. Have you all seen it? You all are excited about it. I know, have you seen it yet, Sarah Jane? All right, we're going to have to make this. We're going to have to fix this. Without giving too much away, the movie Inside Out um, is a story of a girl named Riley who moves uh, from Minnesota to San Francisco. But we take all this in mostly from the perspective of her emotions, joy, anger, fear, disgust, and sadness. Now, sadness has a complicated relationship with Joy. Joy, who's voiced by Amy Poehler from Parks and Rec, she is constantly trying to push sadness, voiced by Phyllis from The Office, sort of out of the picture. Right? There's a great scene where she like draws a circle on the floor and it's like, you just stay right here and don't leave it. I think there are ways in which this is true for our culture at large, the way that Joy are sort of like is trying to get sadness out of the picture to kind of push it to the margins, make it not a thing. But sadness is a really important character in this movie and in our lives. And in fact, you could call sadness the hero of this movie. When Riley loses the ability to articulate her sadness, she becomes numb and hollow and depressed. But once she is able to articulate her sadness openly and honestly, Riley experiences newfound intimacy with her mom and dad. Sort of new emotional connections are made, new core memories are put down. And in a lot of ways, you could say sadness saves Riley's life. It's not that feeling sadness saves her life, but her ability to, say, to, to name it and to own it and to, to express it, like that does. It's a really important thing for her to do. It's important for us to do the same. Sadness is what you feel when you lose something that you love. Like when Riley moves from Minnesota to San Francisco, she loses her childhood home, she loses childhood friends, she loses her hockey team, she loses lots of things, I guess, right? It makes sense for her to feel sad. And when we lose things that we care about, we're going to feel and experience sadness too. Like losses for us could be the loss of a relationship, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend, loss of a friendship. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one to death or disease. Maybe it's moving to a new school or saying goodbye to a job that you really enjoyed or leaving summer camp. The loss could also be something like having an accident and no longer being able to do something that you used to be able to do. I, I think of this movie Crash Reel where just this amazing snowboarder had this traumatic brain injury and he's no longer able to do that. I and mean, There's a ton of sadness for him in that. Maybe it's your roommates moving on to a new place. Or, strangely enough, maybe it's just even looking through a photo album or scrolling through your, your, your photos on your iPhone. And even as you're looking at pictures where everyone's smiling, like that can make you feel sad because that joyful moment is gone. It's in the past. It's, it's, it's no more. Right? It's lost. Sadness is what you feel when you lose something that you love. This connection between love and sadness, it's a powerful one. 
It's why sad songs are ultimately, in a lot of ways, they're love songs, right? Um, we don't shed tears for things that we don't care about. If you go to Activities Fest at the beginning of the semester, I mean, you pick up a whole lot of swag. If you lose it, you don't cry about it because it doesn't mean much to you, right? It's just a thing you got. But if you lose a gift that your grandmother gave you on a special occasion or you lose a note that somebody very dear to you has written you, right, you're going to feel sadness because you love it and you love the one who gave it to you. You lose something that you love. It is right. It's proper for you to feel sad. I love what one author says. She says, when we are sad, we are awakened to what matters most to us. When we feel sad, we're awakened to what really matters right, to us. The only way for you to not feel or experience sadness is either for you to just numb that kind of or for you just to not love at all. As C.S. Lewis says, he says, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, it's your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but be warned because in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable and impenetrable and irredeemable. Ten years ago, uh, almost to the date, it was November 1, uh, 2011. I was living in Massachusetts at the time. I had a really hard, painful conversation with my dad. Uh, Ten years before it, in 2001, my parents got divorced. I was a freshman in college. And my dad never rebounded, never really recovered from his loss. He lost his job, and he started drinking. And I would call my dad uh, from time to time, maybe about once a week. Every phone call, things were getting worse and worse. And on this particular phone call, sort of on November one. 2011, my dad started saying things like, I'm done being your dad. Like, I don't want to be your dad anymore. Now, in 2001, I lost my family as I had known it, like with the divorce. But now, as I'm having this conversation, it feels in a very real way that I'm losing my dad, too. And when I hung up the phone, uh, I just kind of, I sat on the floor uh, and I started crying. And my dog at the time, which is like not even a one-year-old pup named Coulter, he came like bounding into the bedroom and he started licking my face, sort of licking the tears off of my face. And as he was licking my face, I had this very strange thought. The thought that came to mind was, I'm going to have to bury you, which is a weird thing to think, right? I'm sitting on the floor with my dog's licking my face and I think, I've got to bury you. But if you think that's weird... What happens next is even weirder because for the first time in my life, I hear a voice that's not really like in my, it's not in my ears, it's in my head, but it's not mine. It's a strange sensation. It's one of these very rare moments in my life where I feel like God is actually communicating with me directly. And here's what he says. I've got to bury you, right, is my thought. The voice that says back to me is, I want you to learn to love dying things. I want you to learn to love dying things. 
Now, I've spent about a decade trying to make sense of that phrase. And tonight, here's what I've got. Okay, here's my, here's my analysis in summary. When my parents got divorced, I vowed to never let anyone get too close to me, lest I ever feel that kind of pain again. I, I began to go through my life sort of keeping people at an arm's length. Like, I'm not going to get too close to you. I don't want you to get too close to me. And it's at this time when I'm in college that I really begin to encounter the teachings of the Buddha, right? Buddha said that we suffer because of attachment, in a sense, because we love. When we attach ourselves to anything or to anyone, we are bound to get hurt when he, she, or it dies. So, if you don't want to suffer, don't get attached. Right? Don't hold tight to anything. Don't get too close to it. Don't let it get too close to you. Detach. And for several years, that's exactly what I did. I took that teaching to heart. I avoided, and to use the language of Lewis, I avoided all entanglements. I put my heart in a coffin where it couldn't be broken, but it in some ways became unbreakable. It became cold, and it became young, or it became numb. I want you to fast forward sort of like four years from that. I want you to come with me to 2005, 2006. I've told some of the story before. I go to Bangladesh, and then I go to Africa, and it's in Africa that I begin to meet people who are encountering a lot of suffering, like I am. But they're not cold. They're not numb. We're seeing the same things. Kids kidnapped, kids raped, kids forced to kill. But unlike me, they were not cool and detached. They could laugh and they could cry at the same time. They felt joy and sadness. They were very much alive. And they happened to be Christians. And it's on the basis of seeing these people living very much alive that sort of Christianity, which was off the table, became on the table for me. And long story short, I've become a Christian myself at the age of 26. I'm baptized in 2008. But now it's 2011. It's three years later, and I'm in Massachusetts, and I'm on the floor, and my dog's licking my face. I have this thought, I've got to bury you. And I hear this phrase, learn to love dying things. In this moment, after this very hard conversation with my dad, I felt this very strong temptation to go back to a way of detachment. I'm in a lot of pain, and I face this sort of decision. Am I going to continue to love my dad? Am I going to continue to sort of be present and hopeful in this relationship, or am I just going to cut my losses and say, forget it, screw him, screw this, and just sort of detach, yeah, just to not be engaged? Or am I going to love and remain loving, and remain hopeful. And I think Jesus was very much giving me a choice and saying, hey, the choice is real. You can go down this road or you can go down this one, but I want you to learn to love dying things. I want you to learn to not run away from sadness. Not, you don't have to run towards it, but don't run away from it either. Be willing to experience it. Be willing to, to, uh, to suffer it. Because sadness is what comes with the territory when you love. It comes with the territory when you experience joy because we only feel sadness when we lose things that we really love. Make sense? It's starting to make sense to me too, 10 years later. 
There's a song that my daughter Willa loves to sing called Summer Snow, and I'd be happy to play it for you off this system at the end of our time tonight. There's a line in the chorus that goes, the more you love, the, the more you live. And it's a great line to belt when you're like in the bathtub or you're on your way to school to first grade. Like my, my daughter sings this at the top of her lungs, and it's amazing. The more you love, the more you live. The more you love, the more joy and sadness you're going to feel. The more you love, the the, the fuller your life is going to be. It's going to be full of more joy, but it's also going to be full of more sadness. Right? Not because you haven't been loving, but because you have been. Because to feel sadness is to feel loss when those love things go away. And they are sure to, because all love... This side of heaven is all of we're, we're always loving dying things, right? To love is to love something that is dying, whether it's my dog or my dad, you, me, right? To love is to love a dying thing, and it's to be willing to, to, to sit with the impending sadness when it goes. We feel sadness as loss. We feel sadness as a pit in the stomach, as a hole, as a gap, as a void, something that was once there that's now gone. Sadness is something is missing. It's an aching, longing feeling for what once was to be once again, right? Once more. That's how I think we experience it. That's how I experience it. What does sadness sound like in the Psalms or in Psalm 42, which you have before you. Well, as we pick up the receiver on this sort of intimate phone conversation with God, here are the words and some of the feelings that we're able to pick up. A key verse in Psalm 42 is verse 4, because it's this verse where the psalmist identifies the source of his sadness. This is the language of sadness. These things I remember. I remember... These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of uh, uh, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. I remember these things. These are not my present reality. Like the psalmist is like, I'm no longer in this place. Most likely the psalmist is in exile. He's far from home. He's in a place that's new. It's foreign. It's unfamiliar. You're surrounded by strangers, not friends, right? Those, those childhood friends are gone. Uh, that, that, that family that he had, it's gone. Times of laughter and celebration, they're gone. Now, it's a joyful thing that he's recounting, but it's in the past. It's there. It's not here. He's experiencing loss on a lot of different levels. And when we lose things that we love, we call that sadness. And his sadness is articulated in a number of ways. Verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Now, deers are not dogs. Dogs pant all the time. They're always going, <laughs> it's just sort of like what they do. It's like they're breathing. They're, they're, it's how they sweat. But deers don't pant like that, not normally. If a deer is panting, it's because it's being chased. It's because it's being hunted. It hasn't been able to stop and actually catch its breath to be able to, like, drink water. 
So for a deer panting for streams of water, that's a cry of desperation. It's a cry of exhaustion. And I picture someone who's been crying so hard that their body is just spent. Have you ever experienced that? Where you were just so exhausted from grief, so exhausted from mourning. Have you ever cried so hard that your body aches and is tired? you ever panted like a deer? The psalmist is. In verse 3, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. There's a total loss of appetite. The only thing I'm eating is the tears that are running down my eyes and into my mouth. That's the only thing that I'm ingesting. Tears. It's a vivid image. I'm overwhelmed with sadness, verse, four, right? uh, verse 7. Waves washing over me, drowning, trying to keep tread, like trying to stay afloat. Heartbroken, verse 5. My soul is cast down, like it's thrown to the ground. Or other translations read, I'm so discouraged. My heart is so sad. Or another, I'm down in the dumps. I'm crying the blues. It's how he's expressing himself, like uh, trying to find words that are adequate, right, to the experience. He's doing a pretty good job of it. The sadness is disorienting, too. Right? There's lots of question asking. When shall I come and appear before God? Where is your God anyways? Yeah, where are you, God? Why, do, why, do, why have you forgotten me? It's a lot of crying out. But what makes the psalm a prayer is that it's a conversation with God, right? He's not just shouting into the abyss. He's talking to God. The psalmist is taking his sadness and sorrow, and he is pouring it out before God. Uh, We're using this analogy of, of prayer as root, It's not my idea. I really think it's the idea of Jesus is, right? Like when he talks about prayers, this hidden support system, right? It's this, it's it's your hidden life with God. We often don't see it, but the presence of it sort of explains what is above ground. It sort of explains why there's there's something that is sturdy and actually growing fruit. It's because you actually have roots. You you have this ability to sort of, to reach down and connect with him and, and be anchored to him and get life inside of yourself. So prayer is sort of like, Learning how to connect with God in and out of season, all the time, sort of all the the, the phases of your life. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He is reaching out, he is stretching out, and he is looking for God in this place, where he is at. Looking for and reaching for God in his sadness. And that's what we're talking about tonight. Connecting with God in our sadness. It's not just connecting our words with the emotions that we feel, as as important as that is, for us to give an adequate and honest description of, this is who I am, this is where I am at. It's so important that we learn how to do that. But connecting with God and our sadness is also connecting with Him. It's connecting, yes, like I said, our words with our emotions, but it's also connecting with Him. And for us to pay close attention to that, how does he show up here? Like, how does he make himself known? 
And there are two descriptions I want, to, uh, I want you to latch on to from Psalm 42. When we connect with God in our sadness, two things to be looking for as you connect with him yourself. For you to, to, to see and experience God as a rock and for you to see and experience God as your salvation. It's a language that comes to us from Psalm 42. He says, you are my rock. As I said, sadness comes when we lose something that we love. People, places, things, they feel like they're slipping away. But rocks are one of the most permanent things on the planet. At least they are in our experience. Right? Like the Green Mountains, they were there before you, and they're going to be there long after. They're not going anywhere. I mean, not, the great, like, not in your lifetime. Right? Your experience of the rocks is they are immovable. They are fixed. They are sure. So to call God a rock in the midst of our sadness is to anchor ourselves to someone that isn't going to go anywhere. We're losing things. We've lost something, but we're not going to lose him. He's not going anywhere. He's my rock. We can't lose him. That's comforting. But not only do we hear God described as my rock in this prayer, more significantly, we hear him described multiple times as my salvation. Now, rocks are static. They're not going anywhere, and that's a comfort to someone experiencing loss. But my salvation, that's not static at all. My salvation, that's active. That's dynamic. For God to be not just my rock, but my salvation means... That God is not just someone I am reaching for or holding on to. God is my salvation means that he's reaching out for me. And he's moving towards me. And he's holding on to me. And this here and now. He's my rock. I'm reaching for him. But he's my salvation. Oh, man. It's better. He's moving towards me. Reaching out to me. Holding on to me. Y'all with me? The word that gets translated salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua. Maybe this sounds familiar. It will in a second, if not. This word Yeshua, salvation, it shines like a neon sign in the midst of a pretty dark psalm. But not just this psalm, right? It shines like a neon sign throughout the entire Bible. This Hebrew word for salvation or to save, it appears 480 times in the Old Testament. And 130 of those appear here in the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And of course we see it here in Psalm 42. But most significantly, where this word shines the brightest is in the New Testament, where we meet a man by the name of Jesus in English, or Yeshua in the Hebrew. Jesus, Yeshua, my salvation in the flesh, he literally draws near to the brokenhearted. My God, who's my salvation, he moves towards us. We don't just have to reach out for him. He moves towards us in our suffering and sorrow. And as he moves towards us, he weeps with those who weep. He cries with those who cry. Like precious are his tears when he cries with Mary and Martha over the loss of their brother and his dear friend Lazarus. 
Right? This, this person, Jesus, right, who's fully God and fully man, he feels the sting of loss. He's not immune. He's not detached. Or he's described in the scriptures as a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. And he is this way, right? A savior who is also sorrowful because he's a God of love and who loves dying things. And because he loves dying things, because he loves us, he grieves and he mourns when he experiences loss. Our loss. Because not only does he experience sadness, he empathizes with us and ours. And here I am reminded of this character, Sadness in Inside Out. (laughs) This is a weird sentence. But when Bing Bong (laughs) loses his rocket wagon, (laughs) Sadness slides up next to him and says, in effect, I'm sorry that you're sad and that you've lost something that you love. That's hard. Bing bong cries, right? It's all I have left of Riley. Sadness says, I bet you and Riley had great adventures. He says, oh, they were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. That sounds amazing. I bet Riley would really like that. Oh, she did. We were best friends. Yeah, Sadness says, it's sad. Bing Bong then begins to cry loudly. It's a catharsis of tears that are shaped like candy. But because sadness has sat with him in his, and has empathized with him, and has entered into his pain, and has actually helped give it a voice, Bing Bong is then able to pick himself up and move on and says, I'm okay now. Let's go. Before we move on to this last point I want to make, I do want to press this one just a little bit and uh, a little bit further. There's a campus minister named John Bourgeois who does RUF at Wake Forest, and he told me that the God of the Bible only counts two things of ours. He doesn't count our sins. That's not one of the things he counts. The God of the Bible blots out our sins. He casts them into the sea. As far as the east is from the west... So far, he removes our sins from us. He, he doesn't remember them. But this he does recall. This he does count. He counts, one, the number of hairs on your head. And two, he counts your tears. And he collects them in a bottle. Psalm 56, 8, it says, You keep track of all of my sorrows. You have collected all of my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one. In your book. And here's what I think this means. Jesus counts all the hairs on your head. He treasures you. But he also treasures your tears. Because he takes you and he takes your sadness. He takes your loves and the things that you have lost very, very seriously. Because he loves you. Jesus weeps with those who weep. And he calls our tears into remembrance. But that's not all. Jesus enters into our sadness with the power to save because he is, after all, Yeshua. His name is salvation. 
And this word salvation or to save has a wide range of meanings. It means to rescue, to heal, and to restore. And we see this God of salvation, not just weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, but entering in and telling him to come out. This is a God who can say to death, unbind him and let him go. We see this God of salvation show up at the funeral for Jairus' daughter. He pushes past a bunch of mourners and then he kneels beside uh, this little girl's bed. And then in a tender whisper, much like I would use with Willow, he says to her, Honey, it's time for you to wake up. And she does. You see, the God that we connect with in our sadness is a God who weeps with those who weep, who collects our tears in a bottle, but who also has this power to save, who can, not figuratively, but literally, maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but he can do it, and he has promised, I will do it. I can turn your mourning into dancing. And I can turn your once upon a times into now and forevermore. One of the best books I've ever read on sadness is this one right here. It's called Lament for a Son. I highly recommend you read it. Even if you're not feeling sad, this is a good, this is, this is a good lament. It teaches us what it means to, to, to feel sadness and to be able to articulate it. Much like Psalm 42 does. It's written by Nicholas Wolterstorff and it was written... After his son of 25 years, his son was 25 years old, he died while hiking in the Alps. He slipped on a rock, he fell, he died. And then Walter Storff wrote this book, like processing his grief. I think of it as praying with a pen. And page after page, he pours out his lament with raw honesty. This anger and pain in this book, sadness and a profound sense of loss as we sort of pour through these tear-soaked pages. And this sadness that's in here, it tells a story of something that was something in someone who was really loved. Right? The greater the gift, the greater the sense of loss when it is gone. And, and Nicholas loved his son, Eric. Because Eric was so loved, he's also so sorely missed. And that pain never goes away. It, not even by the time you get to the book, end of the book. It's not like, oh, that's over with. The pain is still there. Even if it's not as raw at the beginning, it's always there. But God meets Wolterstorff in his pain. And you can almost detect his presence on these pages too. You can almost sense God there listening to Nicholas's cries and collecting his tears in a bottle and even speaking into his pain. Psalm 42 The psalmist says, now I'm deeply discouraged, but I will remember you. He says that in verse 6. And you discover that here too. Because this lament is not just a remembrance of who Eric was. It's a remembrance of who God is. Who he is and what his character is like and what he is capable of doing. Which is why at the end of this lament, we find the exact same thing that we find at the end of Psalm 42. We find hope. Hope in the midst of sadness. There's still lots of questions. There's still lots of pain. But there's hope. The final words in this lament are, okay. Goodbye, Eric. Goodbye. Goodbye. Until we see.
Sadness is what you and I feel when we lose something that we love. And the only way to not feel sadness is either to numb ourselves, which is what depression feels like. It's not the same thing as sadness. It's numbing. We can either numb it or we can not love. But if we're going to follow the ways of Jesus and not the Buddha, we're going to learn to love lots. We're going to learn to love dying things. And the more we love, the more we live. The more we love, the more joy and sorrow we're going to feel. But in the midst of this joy and sorrow, we're also going to be familiar with hope. Because as we learn to connect with God in our sadness, we are going to connect with the living God, who is both my rock and my salvation. A God who draws near to the brokenhearted, who treasures us and treasures our tears, and who has the power to say to us in our graves, Honey, it's time to wake up. Because this is who we are connecting with in our sadness. We can, without pretense, say with the psalmist and say through our tears, Why am I discouraged? And why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. Let's pray.